let's go to the bigger companies, the ones who are in a mall and the doors are shut. They're not an SBA company. What, if anything, can they really do? You know, does that mean the government's gonna own a piece of them going forward? Hello, it's Matt Rubel, and I wanna welcome you to a special edition of Retails from the Frontline, where we are live coming to you from Washington, D.C., from Miami, Florida, and from Dallas, Texas, all at once on a Zoom video with some very special uh, guests and partners who are gonna talk with you about what is going on in the world of the coronavirus, you know, and how do we address things in the retail community and in the communities that surround the retail world. So I am here with the CEO of the National Retail Federation, Matt Shea, who is in Washington. Thank you, Matt. And I'm here with Steve Sadoff, who is the former chairman and CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue, also has run multiple different um, businesses throughout his career, is on uh, many boards like Colgate, Aramark, you know, he's chairman of, lead director at Colgate, many restaurants, hotels, and other uh, venues that he has that reach deep into the consumer world that we have. So welcome from your beautiful view of the cruise ships parked outside your uh, window there um, in Miami, Steve. Good to be here. Great. So we'd like to get right down to it and, and talk about, you know, Steve, you have such a broad panorama of things in the consumer um, place that you have seen, you know, going on. Can you just kind of give us what are companies focused on today? And if they're not, what should they be focused on based on what you're seeing? Companies are focused on cash and liquidity. And they're focused on the health of their, of their customers and how, looking at how do they get through to the next phase. Liquidity is paramount because most, and again, we, we can't, we're generalizing. You have some retailers that like a Walmart or a Target that are doing, and grocery stores that are doing extremely well because you're in a needs versus wants environment. But broadly, when we talk about retail, and whether it's apparel retailers or malls, we're down to essentially no store traffic, stores are closed, and they have an internet business, which is much smaller than the totality. So what they're dealing with is a no revenue world and a cost base that has been relatively fixed. And so what are retailers doing? They're looking at how do they conserve cash? It's not paying their vendors or taking orders that they had already taken, taken and stopping any new orders. It's furloughing for the first couple of weeks of this environment. Many retailers said we were closed for a few weeks. They kept their employees on the payroll. And then April 1st hit and you had massive amounts of uh, uh, furloughs last week, millions, that the retailer said we can't keep the uh, employees on the payroll anymore. But what they've done is kept, in many cases, kept them on medical. And so they're reducing their costs through uh, the furloughing of employees. And then they look at rent, which is another big component of cost. And in many cases, starting the 1st of April, they're looking at how do we not pay rent anymore? And so you're seeing that as being another controllable. They're looking at reducing their orders. So it's control what you can in the spirit of managing liquidity and obviously looking at the health of their uh, employees and their customers. That's today, here and now, what everyone has focused on. We'll get to the next phase. Where does it go from here? Yeah. So before we get to that, so, you know, Matt, give us, you know, 
Steve's taking us down to the tactics, you know, your rent, you know, your people, your, you know, other things. The magnitude of this hit in terms of what it's done to displace things in the retail community, can you give us some numbers or data behind that in terms of what's happening to those communities and, and how big is it? So Matt, what I would say uh, to put it into context is that a study that was just completed for the NRF by PwC just in the last 60 days uh, concluded that there are more than 52 million Americans who are employed uh, because of retail activity in the United States and that that accounts for almost $4 trillion uh, worth of overall economic activity. So we've got a massive industry. And as, um, you know, as you and Steve both alluded to, you know, a, a, you know, a substantial portion of retail right now is represented by companies that have, to overgeneralize, uh, too many customers and not enough inventory. And then you've got another whole cohort of companies that have too much inventory and not enough customers. And they fall broadly into those two categories that align along essential and non-essential. And there are millions of people that are impacted by this. Uh, there are, as Steve said, millions of furloughs and layoffs. And if you think about the consumer economy generating uh, 70% of our overall uh, GDP in this country, it's a huge component of what makes this economy go forward. So I think uh, what we saw is a very, very, very steep fall off because we know that uh, here we're dealing with this medical challenge and the consumer confidence and consumer behavior is highly correlated with what we know and we think we know about the virus. And I think that should give us some confidence that when we start to beat the virus, consumer confidence will return. And the big question, and you've sort of uh, foreshadowed this uh, in your remarks, the big question is when do we return to quote unquote normal and what does normal look like? Steve, coming back to safety first. So, yeah. you know, obviously companies want to be liquid to get on the other side, but safety first. So talk about new practices that people are putting in with the retailers who are open that are working um, uh, things that are happening to keep people who are open in essential services um, safe when they do have to go out and shop? Well, I think first it's in a manufacturing facilities, in the warehouses, in the distribution centers. It's how do you uh, take the practices that are being recommended in terms of distancing, in terms of masks, in terms of sanitization, uh, wherever possible, I think every company is putting those in place. You're having shorter hours so you can clean more often in the workplace. Uh, employees that are out on the road are uh, being given sanitation uh, uh, capabilities to be able to wipe down uh, uh, any of the products that they're, that they're dealing with. So as much as is possible is being done. If you're in the uh, facilities where you're manufacturing, for example, or warehousing, you're having space between the shifts. So that if somebody does uh, have a uh, test positive, for example, you're not going to contaminate both shifts. You're going to only have one shift affected. So there's common sense practices being taken place. One of the things that I'm also seeing is that at the beginning of every shift, you know, retail or other, I mean, there are markers on the floor and where you can stand and things like that. But at the beginning of every shift, every employee is both asked to check in with their health and also given an option not to be at work. So I think that- Absolutely. That. So Matt, coming back to kind of moving from kind of, okay, make your employees safe, those that have to work, keep them very safe, 
you know, manage your payables, you know, work with your landlords, you know, that's tough. I heard only 25% of April's rents uh, at retail were actually paid. So we've got that. But let's talk about the programs that the government has put in place to help us. It's almost like a large bridge loan, you know, that's going out, um, things that create cash flow characteristics, as well as money into the system. So maybe breaking it out into money in the system, Matt, as well as, you know, uh, things that have, you know, deductions and cash flow characteristics, what has been passed and what needs to get passed. Sure. Well, what, what was passed uh, in the last week, uh, the CARES Act, was actually the third relief bill. So there were two other relief bills that were passed very, very quickly in the preceding weeks and about three weeks prior to that. But this is by far the largest um, and uh, $2 trillion as, as advertised, a substantial portion of which is devoted to uh, direct payments to individuals uh, and unemployment insurance and uh, a lot of emphasis around keeping people attached to the workforce and payroll protections. That's one whole basket. Uh, then there's another whole bucket for small business lending. Uh, that's also about $350 billion. And then there's, for larger companies, the so-called exchange stabilization fund, there's $450 billion available to the treasury to make available to the Federal Reserve so the Federal Reserve can lever that money up uh, to make direct um, loans to the regional banks and the regional banks then by extension to all their customers. So the goal was uh, to try to protect workers and individual families and give them a safety net to allow small businesses to keep their employees attached to the workforce, and then to provide liquidity for those larger companies, which as, as Steve has said uh, quite accurately, the big issue is cash flow and liquidity. And that's where that, that next tranche of money was directed, was to the, the Treasury and the Fed for that purpose. So Matt, let, let's, let's just separate these two things for one, one quick. First, you got the SBA portion of this, which is really meant for Main Street. It's meant for the local retailer, the local restaurant, you know, businesses below 500 um, uh, employees. Um, and that one was kind of launched, you know, we can say Friday, but it really was launched over the weekend is when it started to connect with SBA. When can people start to expect to see that money actually flowing back into the economy? Well, the, the goal is to get it out, obviously, as quickly as possible. So within the next few weeks, uh, that money should be there. The payments to consumers should be by next week. And then the, the availability of these funds, there was obviously uh, an enormous level of interest in these SBA loans. Uh, so it did get off to a bit of a bumpy start at the end of last week. They made some pretty dramatic corrections and adjustments over the weekend and into the early part of this week. So hopefully, as this rolls out over the course of the next few days, we'll see more people picking up on it, and it should be providing real liquidity to those businesses in the next week. And the key is for the local um, applicants for this program or for the applicants to work directly with their bank, and their bank goes through SBA, or is there another way to do it? No, that, the, the best way to do this is through your bank, and there are many, many banks across the country that have long history and working relationships with the SBA. Uh, some have spent more time uh, building those relationships than others, but many small business owners uh, have been involved in SBA programs in the past, uh, are aware of these relationships, and there are a number of regional banks that have strong relationships there, and those are the places people are going to try to access these loans. 
And if somebody didn't have a banking relationship that was strong with one of these banks that has an SBA relationship, what do they do? Well, the, the SBA certainly can make recommendations, uh, but I think you know most small businesses have a banker and virtually every community bank in this country is now involved one way or another in these SBA programs and has the opportunity to help their existing customers or for that matter, new customers um, avail themselves of this relief. And so that's the goal was really to use uh, the existing um, distribution mechanisms from the treasury to the Fed, to the regional banks, to the local banks, where there are already existing relationships that didn't require the creation of a whole set of new relationships in the interest of time. That's great. So 2,500 banks out there in your community, that's where you go. Go work with them. They'll help you fill out the forms. They'll go to the SBA. They've got the system worked out. So now let's segue away. I know there's also, you know, ways to get tax benefits, you know, and things like that, looking back at losses and profits and stuff like that. And that's, that's a little more detailed than we'll get into today. But, but let's go to the bigger companies, the ones who are in a mall and the doors are shut. Um, and they're not an SBA company. What, if anything, can they really do? You know, does that mean the government's going to own a piece of them going forward? I think what they've done has been to tap into their revolvers, tap into their lines of credit. Uh, in some cases, uh, they have been essentially tapping into their balance sheet as best the, uh, and capabilities of the balance sheet as best they can, and they have several months of runway to go. But having said that, there's a limitation on it, and that's where I think Matt can talk about what are some of the opportunities and the needs of these companies as we think about what's the curve on the other side going to be in the recovery space. Well, maybe before we go to Matt, I think one of the things that we should note that that is a positive here is that the great banks of our country put themselves in good order. So they are able to actually let you get access to the asset-backed loans or to your revolvers, the JP Morgans, the, you know, the BAMLs, you know, the Bank of Americas, you know, um, all of those banks are are in good shape. So, you know, that's, that's right. a great positive. So, so Matt, how do they you know, as they're kind of looking at this, they just continue to go to the private market or what are the public funds outside of the airlines and, you know, the ones that we know are going to be backed by the government, you know, similar to what AIG was. How do they, how do they get um, money here? Basically through the same relationships they've got now with their bankers, but instead of going to the SBA for that support, those banks are going to be looking to the Federal Reserve, the regional bank, uh, to provide liquidity in the market. And the Fed has already stood up a number you know, outside the, the four walls of the CARES Act, the Fed has already stood up a number of credit facilities uh, on its own initiative that are providing support for the credit markets uh, that, are, that are working very effectively. But the money that was made available through the CARES Act to the Treasury, the $454 billion that then the Treasury can make available to the Federal Reserve to make additional loans based on that, now, that's where the larger companies are going to have to go. And there are certainly some restrictions uh, on what that looks like. And, uh, you know, th that was part of the negotiated deal. Uh, there are some limitations to the way uh, it can be used and the way that those companies can operate. But as, as our focus has shifted over the last week from working with the Congress to get the legislation passed to now working with the Treasury and the Federal Reserve to help them understand why these companies need the assistance and the characteristics and the profiles of these companies in terms of um, their investment grade and, and their, their debt structure, their cash flow, some of the things that Steve alluded to. 
so that we make sure that the companies that need this most are the ones that actually get it. So we don't need a fund or, or access to credit that's available only to those who don't really need it. We need to make sure that we stand this up and we make it available to those uh, in the greatest need. And, and I guess the, only, the last thing I would say is that remember that you know, the, the goal here ought to be uh, to provide liquidity to all comers uh, for good collateral. And so you have to work out what are the issues around collateral and inventory and, and all those other issues. But these are businesses that were going concerns on January 1st, March 1st. So we're not asking for a bailout here, simply as you characterize it, Matt, I think correctly, a bridge to get through this period of disruption in the consumer cycle and to put ourselves at least back on the same footing we were on before we went into this, because these companies are closed by mandate. This is like eminent domain where the government has said, we're going to take your business away and force you to close for good reason in the public interest and for the health of the public, that's fine. But nevertheless, these companies should not be rewarded uh, with bankruptcy simply because they did the right thing and followed government orders. Right. And, and I think that one of the other things that for you know people to understand in the programs here, which I think you'd validate, um, is that these are not free loans either. They're, they're you know, they are things that, that the that when these companies come back, the shareholders, which are really the constituent holders, which are everybody who pays taxes and lives in this country, will benefit from that. And that money will go back into Treasury, back into that, and back into the total system. So I think I think it's important. I have one final question, Matt, for you before we segue to um, kind of when. Um, and that is, you know, tariffs. Tariffs are something that we all pay and, you know, heard a lot about it the past year, but you know, it's something that, you know, retailers have to pay and that impacts cash flow as goods come in. Is there any relief on that that's on the horizon? Well, we've obviously had that conversation many times uh, with the administration. Uh, there are conversations taking place now uh, with, the, uh, with the leadership and members of uh, both parties on, on, on both sides of Capitol Hill, the House and the Senate, about sort of the, the irresponsibility of forcing these companies to continue to uh, write checks uh, for duty and tariff payments at a time when uh, we're trying to provide as much liquidity to those companies as we can. So at least at minimum, uh, a suspension uh, on a temporary basis of, of the payment of duties and tariffs uh, would make an enormous amount of sense to help those companies put that money back to work in places where we want it to be working and not simply to be writing checks to the treasury on one hand, while the treasury then turns around and writes checks back out. It just doesn't make any sense. So Yeah, the flow is wrong and it also helps you deal with your employees more effectively up front. So it's, it's like, why would you pay for something that's going to sit in a closed store anyway? For a period of time, so so I, I think uh, that it's a very clear thing that you know basic fundamental logic will will move that forward. I want to jump over to Steve for a second. So Steve, you know you've got this amazing panorama of you know you got hotels, you've got you know food service companies, you've got you know you've got packaged goods companies too, um, and retailers. Um, when when does this end? When do we reopen our doors? And then from your perspective. What's the slope back up and what's the new normal? Yeah. Now, I think that we're not going to see this go back to a new norm, to a normal that we used to have anytime soon. Stores will probably open slowly and it's going to be in phases. 
I would guess the end of May, beginning of June, you'll start to see some stores opening. It's not going to be in two weeks from now. This is going to be over an extended period of time. And the consumer is not going to go running back into the stores in a V shape. You're going to see people scared of going into large crowds. Malls will come back slowly. You're going to see malls, some of them, the C&D malls start to see that some of them go away more quickly. This is going to be a gradual return. And the new normalcy is going to be people are fearful of going, and they still are going to be in a uh, needs versus wants mentality. My guess is that, as you saw in China, that will be a relatively graduated recovery. The fall season, depending upon the category, you'll see a, a new normal that might be 75% of what it was beforehand, 50% in some categories, and it will go into the next year. It will be a U that has a low, a long tail in the middle. It's not, I don't think it's an L that is extended, but it's going to be a slower recovery. And it's going to uh, be a situation where a lot of these companies are going to need support for an extended period of time. It's not going to be two months and we're back to normal. This is going to be a trade-off, and it's going to be a trade-off of testing becomes critical because you have to understand where the hotspots are going to be. There's going to be a trade-off of privacy and health versus economics. You're going to see in the fall some flare-ups where you're going to see, uh, uh, see, uh, see the virus come back, and then you're going to have to make decisions of economics versus health. And so this isn't going to be one shot in two months. We're out of this, it's done, and it's not coming back. We're going to, at some point, a vaccine, antivirals, but we're going to have to be in an environment where the economic trade-offs versus health are going to be around for some period of time. Well, you've got, you know, you say economics versus health. I think there's, there's mental health issues that are occurring now, too, from what I understand. There's Absolutely. Online calls are up and, and other areas, too. So as people are dealing with the, the other trauma in their life. So it's, it's a, an incredibly, you know, challenging. And think about the implications, Matt, for uh, uh, sports venues. Are we going to have an NFL football season? You bet. Universities that are all distant need to defend their title. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of get on that one. But I want to go over to Matt. And so yeah, sorry, I I did have my one final after fifty years. <laughs> you got it. So I was happy. But I, I do think that um, we will see that the NFL is currently you know there and you know how they're going to deal with it. I mean, I know health clubs are talking about fewer people in classes. They're talking about having people you know in the places that will do wipe downs. You know. They're changing scents and changing air filter systems. They're doing all sorts of things to make it healthy. So, Matt, you know, in terms of planning, you know, you oversee, you know, the largest, you know, group involved in retail in this country and the most number of employees. How are you counseling your members to think about the length and then the curve back up? Well, I think in the near term, our focus is really on the relief efforts, both those current and, and any that may be subsequent. And there's certainly been a lot of talk over the last week, uh, just since the passage of the CARES Act about another CARES Act or CARES Act II. So uh, our primary focus now has been with regard to the essential uh, companies, those that are open, uh, is to work with them, coordinate with them about the kinds of things they're doing to make their workplaces safe, to keep their employees safe and their customers safe. and you know, managing that across 
uh, 50 states and hundreds of cities and thousands of counties has been quite complicated and quite challenging because of the inconsistent decision making. And so without creating uh, certainly you could see some coalescing. You saw some announcements from a number of the major retailers last week uh, about the kinds of practices that they're adopting. And, and then the other bit of what we're doing is really just working on trying to get deep effort flowing where it needs to go, uh, trying not to look ahead to uh, a fourth piece of legislation, but certainly understanding that the politics of that and maybe the economics will suggest that we're going to need it. So I would think also that this, as Steve said, this is not going to be over uh, in 60 days. And I don't know if it's a U or if it's some sort of a hockey stick um, in terms yeah, of- I haven't found the letter. I pulled up the alphabet last night and I looked at it visually and I say, okay, what letter could I use to describe this? And it was like some sort of a dysfunctional U, you know, I don't know, a U with a bridge. <laughs> I don't know. It was like some odd thing. So before we, uh, we kind of wrap up today, because we'd love to talk about consumer in the future, but I don't think we have enough time today. So we're going to kind of ask you two to come back in a couple of weeks once we've cleared our table on some of this, and maybe we'll add somebody else to the, to the discussion here. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, listen, we're all people, we're all humans. So I'd love to hear from each one of you kind of what is the most, you know, kind of inspiring human thing that, you know, you've seen happen kind of dealing with the morass and challenges of this. And, you know, since everybody thinks that there's a lack of humanity in Washington, D.C., um, on some levels, we're going to ask you first to come up with, Matt, what have you seen that really shows something that makes us be inspired about the country that we're a part of, the industry that we're a part of, and and we as a human race? Well, uh, Matt, I would, I would mention uh, all of the great... Um, the great initiatives that have been undertaken by retail companies to try to uh, provide um, the kinds of uh, equipment that people need to make direct donations, to create um, masks and gowns. And I mean, that's the, at the macro level, but I'll give you a more human, um, intimate one. I was out for a walk yesterday in the neighborhood since we're all quarantined and, and sequestered. And I walked past uh, one of the homes in the neighborhood where the chief, uh, the chief pulmonologist from the largest regional hospital here in Northern Virginia lives, and he was outside cutting his grass. And I talked to him for a few minutes from a safe distance, and I said, how are you doing? How are you holding up? And he was actually quarantined because he was exposed by a patient. And he was not at all upset about the fact that he might have been exposed. He was simply upset that he couldn't get back to the hospital quickly enough to take care of those patients that needed him. And that's what he was really frustrated about. And I think if you, if you just imagine the plight and the challenge and the dedication of some of those healthcare workers that are out there, nurses, doctors, technicians, literally in harm's way, I think we have to really, really, really salute them because of the work they're doing is, is really absolutely the most important thing that could happen right now. The Hippocratic Oath, I mean, uh, you know, I yeah. mean, the, the doctor's oath comes to life, you know, and it's, it's real. We don't, you know, purpose-driven lives are, are shown through things like that. So that's wonderful. Steve, what about you? Well, it would pattern somewhat what Matt's talking about, the video or the scenes on television of the firefighters and the crowds that are standing in front of the hospitals, cheering the nurses and the doctors as they come in and out of shifts, and the, uh, the, the sacrifice that they're making uh, in order to protect so many people is just so inspiring and 
you know, you just come away with tears in your eyes because uh, they are just, and we have friends who are nurses who are uh, on the front lines and then listening to their stories about worrying about whether they have the right equipment and the gowns and uh, uh, you just, uh, your heart goes out. And, you know, I just feel so inspired by the companies that are now doing everything they can to fill in the gap and make sure that the equipment is there. But those visuals are so compelling. So we as humanity come together to kind of bring ourselves back. And, uh, you know, uh, I can only say that, you know, whether it's watching people who are making cold calls, you know, for their churches, their temples, their communities, you know, um, their religious institutions to elderly people who are, you know, sequestered alone, you know, in their homes and just making sure they're okay. You're seeing that go on. And there are so many things that people are doing to reach out, support their local businesses, help neighbors. Uh, and actually, the great thing is when you walk the neighborhood, you actually get to know your neighbors. You know, so um, that's wonderful. Well, I wanted to thank you know Matt and Steve, you know Matt in Washington D.C. for all the great work that you've done in helping to save jobs, bring health, bring liquidity to our companies. Steve, for your great insights and leadership uh, within our retail community. And this is what Retails from the Front Line is. It brings you to the front line of what is happening with the people who are on the front lines. I'm Matt Rubel, and I want to thank you for joining us with this special edition of Retails from the Front Line. From Dallas, Texas, see y'all soon. <laughs>